Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at Asawa, the DRC's new Prime Minister prepares to form long-awaited government and experts express concern over growing food insecurity in Africa. In economics news, U.S. President accuses China of manipulating its currency and in sports news, South African fast bowler Dale Stain retires from Test cricket. But first up, the news with Dan Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs David Hill is expected to visit Khartoum on Wednesday for talks on the democratic transition in Sudan with the leaders of the Transitional Military Council and the forces of freedom and change. Hill's visit to Sudan is part of a regional tour including Kenya, Somalia and Sudan. The visiting State Department senior official will also meet with civil society actors including women and youth who were in the forefront demanding change in Sudan. John Bolton, assistant to the U.S. President for National Security Affairs, on Sunday welcomed the, the initialization of an agreement on a constitutional declaration by the TMC and the FFC. The standoff between South Africa's public protector Busiswim Kibane and the civil society group Accountability Now has deepened with the group confirming that it has opened a criminal case against her. The group's director Paul Hoffman has accused Mkebane of perjury and defeating the ends of justice. This is in relation to one of her findings in the APSA Reserve Bank matter that she lost with costs in the Constitutional Court last week. We uh, laid criminal charges with SAPS. The charges are perjury and defeating the ends of justice, and they both arise out of the findings of the Constitutional Court. It's up to the uh, prosecution service to decide whether a charge of perjury is sufficient. It's also conceivable that they will uh, read into the findings that have been made an attempt by her to defeat the ends of justice. South Africa's former National Assembly Speaker Bale Kambete says she believes that the country is not ready for a female president. Her comments come as the country marks National Women's Day on Friday. Mbete says women have proved to be great leaders and are ready to lead the country. However, she says most South Africans do not support female leadership. I think... 
there are lots of women who are ready, who are great, who are even better qualitatively than many male leaders. But South Africa is extremely unready. South Africa believes women are not the type of people who must be leaders. Mm. And yet they see them doing great things, but they choose to believe otherwise. A drone airstrike in southern Libya has killed more than 40 people at the town of Mazouk. Forces loyal to the military commander, Khalifa Haftar, says they carried out an attack on the town on Sunday, but deny targeting civilians. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. This is the second time in the past two months that an airstrike blamed on Khalifa Haftar's forces has resulted in mass civilian casualties. In June, at least 44 people were killed in a migrant detention centre on the outskirts of Tripoli. This latest attack has occurred far from the capital, deep in southern Libya. Earlier this year, Haftar's forces mounted a major campaign to seize the region's oil fields. They took control of the town of Mazouk, but later pulled out to move on Tripoli. And finally, the former U.S. President Barack Obama has called on Americans to reject the language of hatred from any of their leaders. His comments come after President Donald Trump sought to defend criticism that his anti-immigrant rhetoric fuels violence. 31 people were killed in two mass killings at the weekend, the BBC's Peter Bowers reports. While the president condemned white supremacy, his opponents have argued that his use of racist language in the past could be partly to blame for attacks like the shooting in El Paso. All of us, Mr Obama said, had to send a clarion call and behave with the values of tolerance and diversity that should be the hallmark of our democracy. The former president's views were echoed by the Democratic candidate Beto O'Rourke, who's campaigning to become his party's presidential nominee. He's from El Paso and has been visiting the scene of the shooting. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Una Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. Democratic Republic of Congo's new Prime Minister, Sylvester Ilunga, Ilungamba is busy consulting in order to put in place the country's long-awaited government. This will be a government of 65 members, 42 coming from former President Joseph Kabila's Common Front for Congo and 23 from President Felix Tshisekedi's Cap for Change. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. It's now more than two months since Sylvester Ilunga Ilungamba was appointed Prime Minister to replace Bruno Chibala, who led the last government of former President Joseph Kabila. And up to now, Ilunga Ilungamba hasn't taken yet. The office and the Democratic Republic of Congo's affairs are still managed by the outgoing government, although the whole team has resigned months ago. 
The news so long expected the government of Sylvester Ilunga Ilungamba is to be made of 65 members, including 48 full ministers and 17 deputy ministers. And indeed, all these members are from former President Joseph Kabila's coalition, the Common Front for the Congo, well known as FCC, with 42 members, and current President Felix Tshisekedi's coalition, the CAP pour le changement, well known as CASH, with 23 members. It's indeed a coalition government that's expected here and the new prime minister has started consulting to make sure he selects the right persons at the right places according to this country's people's expectations. The very first person Ilungamba consulted last weekend was the current chief of staff of the head of state. Vital Kamero is also the leader of the Union for the Congolese Nation, well known as UNC, which is the only partner of President. President Felix Tshisekedi's Union for Democracy and Social Progress, UDPS, as far as the Cash Coalition is concerned. After his meeting with Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilunkamba, Vital Camero spoke to media in this way. That's a man who's going to work with President Felix Tshisekedi and all of us to show the difference between political parties and uh, the government. The political party aims to take power, but once on power, in the government, we have to bring all our efforts together in order to reach the goals that the Prime Minister with the President who's the boss have planned for the Congolese people. Former President Joseph Kabila, who led this country for 18 full years, didn't run for last December presidential election as the Democratic Republic of Congo's constitution doesn't allow more than two terms for a head of state. The opposition and the civil society were always blaming his administration and politics for this country's mismanagement, but his coalition, the Common Front for the Congo, FCC, won the majority at all levels, although the opposition won the presidential election. That's why the current president, Felix Tshisekedi's coalition, Kapul Shanjma, the cash, didn't have any other choice but to sit with Joseph Kabila's for a coalition management. Most of observers have described the new government to be put in place as a big number of members to spend this country's money. But according to this analyst from the Africa Bless Israel organization, what's important is to keep the right person at the right place as there are some many priorities for the well-being of Congolese. Pastor Albert Mbenga. Who are going to be part of this government? Are they the same people who have ruled this country and put the country in the situation where we are now? Or there are new people coming with a new energy? And we hope because they have taken a long time. The president, I think he has processed all the names and wherever. And we hope that those who are going to be selected to run the government, they will do it in a proper way. But uh, priority for the new government is, for me, there are two, is uh, security and agriculture. Meanwhile, the country's civil society has denounced what it describes as an agreement of exclusion signed between FCC and CASH since the upcoming government won't include the civil society members. This is indeed an FCC cash coalition government and to be part of it one needs first to be a member of one of these two coalitions which are well known as the only to rule the DRC up to 2023.
But the civil society doesn't understand it this way and instead it calls on President Felix Tshisekedi to make sure he includes some civil society members within the government for him to expect good results. Freddy Bonganga is from the Electoral Civil Society. The civil society, we call on the head of state to know the exclusion politics never succeed. There are intelligent persons and technocrats within the civil society. So a government without the civil society, we say no and no. We want the president to impose a new leadership. It's now more than six months since President Felix Tshisekedi was inaugurated as the head of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this country's people are still waiting for a new government up to now as they want to see new faces. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Let's go back in time to today in 1990. South African anti-apartheid struggle stalwart Adelaide Tambo returns to South Africa after 30 years abroad. Tambo became politically active after her grandfather's arrest at the age of 10. While she attended high school, she started to work as a courier for the African National Congress. At the age of 18, she joined the ANC Youth League where she met Oliver Tambo. Today in History, 1990. Experts in food and agriculture sector in Africa have expressed their concerns over growing food insecurity on the continent, despite the fact that 60% of world arable land is found in Africa. They said this at the kickoff of their two days high-level conference, dubbed Africa Food Security in Kigali, Rwanda. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. The increase in food insecurity on the continent turns into concerns, as some of its parts are faced with the conflict war and the consequences of climate change. The staggering numbers provided during the morning sessions at this conference showed that the insecurity in food supply and insufficiency dates back in the 1970s, a decade after several African countries had just gained independence. Today, the proportion of the malnourished population has remained within 33 to 35 percent range in sub-Saharan Africa. Experts in attendance believe this poses a significant concerns in Africa, a continent regarded as youthful because of its youthful population that accounts for over 70%. Mucheshima Najraeddin is Rwanda's Minister of Agriculture. The problem is due to climate change which causes drought, floods, and civil wars, and conflict in many countries in Africa. To achieve food security has become like dreams in the past three years. Despite the fact that 60% of the world Arab land is found in Africa, the continent continues to face conflicts war and other forms of insecurity which persistently cripple the agricultural produce on the continent. 
Gilbert Hangbo, the director of the International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD, says more efforts need to be put in the agricultural sector if the continent needs not to remain hungry forever. And therefore, we need to really have a specific action for our continent. And out of the 50 uh, most food insecure countries in the world, 31 are in Africa. That tells it, uh, tells it all. So we really need to step up our effort. We need to invest on different levels of productivity as well as the transformation so to uh, minimize the food waste and loss. Governments in Africa have been taking robust measures in ensuring food security but implementing these measures remains big concern. The conference therefore decided to call upon governments to act enough with a tangible example of the consequences attached. No, of course it will reduce. It won't avoid totally, but it will uh, reduce tremendously. Because uh, most of the people who are going, you can say around uh, 30 to 40 percent, is really related to how to feed your family. What is your future? how to have access to, to jobs. So if we have a strong and uh, robust agricultural sector, I'm sure that it will occupy a number of uh, young people, a huge proportion, so it will reduce also the temptation to go overseas. The problem of hunger in Africa gets worse in countries which are in wars and conflicts. However, the Food and Agriculture Organization says, though it's had humanitarian intervention step in, Abebe Haile Gabriel is the Assistant Director General. Yeah, you see, the problem of conflict is that even when food is available nearby, you cannot move it. You cannot take it to the nearest market because, you know, and so um, it's, it's, the problem is complicated. But FAO works with, uh, we have uh, what we call humanitarian interventions uh, in which we work with other partners to mobilize resources uh, so that we make available uh, food and other assistance to the needy ones, those who are in emergency situations. But FAO doesn't stop there because you can't, you can't feed people every day and, you know, every day of the year, every year of, you know, whatever. Fifteen years ago, African heads of state met in Malabo and decided to send a protocol that called on every country in Africa to inject 10% of the annual budget into agriculture. Today, experts say a hundred countries have heeded this call. Sylvanus Kalemira reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Sudan's military rulers and the main opposition coalition have reached an agreement paving the way for a new transitional government after lengthy negotiations following the fall of veteran leader Omar al-Bashir. The agreement, which outlines the shape of the transitional government, was brokered by the African Union and neighboring Ethiopia in talks that were sometimes suspended because of street violence in Khartoum and other cities. James Shemangula has in a statement issued by the military authorities in Sudan, the final signing of the power-sharing agreement will be held at a historic ceremony in the country's capital Khartoum. According to the statement, the August 17th ceremony will be witnessed by leaders from various parts of Africa and the Middle Eastern countries. The African Union as well as the United Nations will also be represented at the ceremony. Already Sudan's ruling transitional military council and opposition alliance forces for freedom and change 
have launched the constitutional declaration with the express purpose of paving the way for a transition to civilian rule following the toppling of Sudan's long-serving President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir on the 11th of April after months of mass protests against his autocratic rule. El-Bashir seized power in a 1989 military coup and ruled Africa's largest country with what critics and political observers have described as an iron fist. The military council and leaders of opposition alliance forces for freedom and change reached the power-sharing deal last Friday, the second of this month, after extensive talks in Khartoum. Organizers of the ceremony in Khartoum say the ruling Transitional Military Council, known in short as TMC, will be abolished on the 18th of this month and subsequently a presidential council will be formed. The presidential council comprising six civilians and five military officials will be sworn in on the 19th of August. Sudan's Prime Minister is to be officially appointed with the approval of the presidential council on the 20th of august and will be sworn in in the presence of the council and the head of the country's supreme court on the 21st of august the prime minister is expected to announce a cabinet of 20 members who will be officially approved by the presidential council on the 28th of august members of the cabinet will start performing their official duties on the 31st of august as the people of sudan eagerly wait for the aforementioned to take place ali haji one of the leaders of the opposition alliance forces for freedom and change has pleaded with the incoming new government to ensure that it helps thousands of people whose breadwinners were killed on the 3rd of June this year when security forces attacked demonstrators outside army headquarters in Khartoum. We've lost so many lives, okay, and the old regime have destroyed our country. We have witnessed the deterioration of the economic situation, the abuse of human rights, the deaths among our people. It's like our lives does not matter to them. Also echoing remarks made by one of Freedom for Change leaders, Alia Haji, but in a different perspective, is Muna Bashir, one of Sudan's prominent activists. Muna is calling on the new government to establish a commission to investigate rape and defilement cases that she and other women activists have recorded. As civil society, there are evidence and uh, many victims uh, get to the service points of uh, different uh, actors. We will continue doing that uh, for both the support of uh, survivors and victims and for preparation of the investigations. Victims who came out and uh, spoke in very high courage and uh, the main lesson we learned from this experience that uh, sexual abuse as a weapon failed in breaking the courage and the power of people on the streets. Muna Bashir says once peace prevails in Sudan, people that were offended by the security forces and their agents will get the opportunity to lodge cases of compensation 
in court. For all actors, it is very difficult to go to courts or to uh, file cases in the absence of uh, feeling of peace and uh, protection. And this is one of the problems. So now we are waiting for, for protective environments that can help and uh, encourage the victims to go for legal uh, process. That was Muna Bashir, one of Sudan's prominent activists. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa 1. On Twitter, at Channel Africa 1. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. A South African company that supported 20 teenagers to create their own four-seater aircraft is mourning the death of two of its directors. Des Werner and Werner Fronman died after the support plane they were in crashed in Tanzania at the weekend. They had been escorting the teen pilots back home from Cairo. Channel Africa's Coletta Wanjori spoke to the two directors when the team was in Ethiopia in July and gave us an insight into what their plans were. This is the support plane that Deswana and Wana Froneman used to guide the team of three teen pilots who were flying an aircraft they designed and built themselves from Cape Town to Cairo. We met them when they landed in Addis Ababa in July. Deswana was the head of the project. I'm doing a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure that the, the operation is safe because we fly what's known as VFR, which is Vigil Flight Rules. That means that you have to be able to see the ground. You can't fly in bad weather. So today was really, really tricky to get in here because you can't do an approach like a Boeing can do. You've got to do it visually, which makes it really, really tricky. The duo were part of Dream Global Company, founded by one of the teen pilots, Megan Wana, the daughter of Des Wana. Both were integral to the success of the 20 South African teenagers who built this four-seater aircraft in just three weeks. Wana Froneman was the coach of Dream Global. My company is the Wealth Creation Institute and uh, that's what we do. We actually coach and uh, teach companies, small entrepreneurs. Um, We give people the tools so that they can significantly impact their own lives and the world around them and their communities. They already had plans to grow the innovation into an international business. Deswana, the head of the project, explained they had plans to grow the innovation into an international business. Long-term plan is to inspire the world. That's why it's called You Dream Global because we want to do this all all over the globe. Um, we've already been approached by, by Nigeria, by America, by the UK, all sorts. So we would like to see this project continue. The death of the pair has cut short what would have been a successful experimental flight for the teen pilots. They were traveling towards Malawi before hopefully landing in South Africa on Monday. What may live on is the inspiration the directors intended the project of the 20 teenagers to have globally. Wana Froneman was the coach of U Dream Global. This project has impacted tens tens and tens of thousands of lives worldwide and um, i mean on one of our views we already had a million views and people see that something that was perceived to be completely impossible is truly possible and it makes you know us as grown-ups it makes us think hold on a second if kids could do this what else could i do with my life and other youth are thinking Hold on, if someone of my own age is doing this, how much more can I do in my life? You Dream Global is yet to advise on the way forward for the homemade aircraft project.
The late directors had plans to turn the innovative project into a television program where their global venture would be documented for others to follow. Perhaps now it is something that the company will continue to pursue in their memory. Koleta Njohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. As part of stakeholder capacity building and creating a platform for discussions on new technology and harnessing lessons learned from global players, NEMBOARD is hosting the first ever Gold Chain Summit in Manzini at Eswatini's Mavuso Trade and Exhibition Center on 7th and 8th of this month. The summit will create an environment of learning, contributing, sharing experiences, networking with captains of industries, and most importantly, an opportunity to forge vital business relationships with supplier, producers, retailers, and processors. Channel Africa will be there, so join Agro-Africa on Wednesday the 7th and African Dialogue on Thursday the 8th. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. On the headlines, the standoff between South Africa's public protector Busisi Mkebane and the civil society group Accountability Now has deepened with the group confirming that it has opened a criminal case against her. U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs David Hale is set to discuss the democratic transition in Sudan with the leaders of the Transitional Military Council and the Forces of Freedom and Change. And the trial of Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso is set to continue in the Port Elizabeth High Court in South Africa this morning. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And Zimbabweans are currently debating the marriage 
bill which seeks to replace two 1918 marriage laws that are not in harmony with the 2013 constitution. However, the bill has given rise to a fierce debate on various clauses that appear to be taking away certain powers from legally married women while protecting mistresses. On Monday, constitutional experts met legislators in the capital Harare, where the marriages bill was unpacked, exposing serious inconsistencies with what the bill seeks to achieve. Channel Africa Simon Machema has more from Harare. In a bid to harmonize the existing marriage laws enacted in 1918 to the new constitution of 2013, the Zimbabwean government has introduced marriages bill. Already the bill has created some fierce debate among citizens who out of their fears or just ignorance have expressed mixed feelings. Section 40, which seeks to introduce civil partnerships while protecting women whose marriages are not registered, has been interpreted to mean allowing men to have several legalized marriages. On one hand, Christians who feel the bill could be introducing homosexuality in Zimbabwe have blasted the same section. However, the bill could bring positive changes to the 1918 laws with regards how to get married, constitutional law expert Professor Lavmo Maduku said. Professor Maduku was addressing legislators in Harare during a workshop meant to unpack the marriages bill. Every person who has attained the age of 18 years has the right to found a family. In other words, what the constitution says is that you can found a family. You don't have to marry to found a, a family. That's what the constitution says. And when you look at this, which means when you look at marriage laws, you must be conscious of the fact that there are people who can actually start and found my families, and if you compel them to marry, no person may be compelled to enter into marriage against their will. During his presentation, Professor Maduga expressed disappointment to the fact that the bill does not cover all the marriages laws. Zimbabwe already has two different marriage laws which were passed in 1918 during the colonial era and no longer relevant to the current society, he said. So I'm making the point that the marriage bill does not cover everything relating to marriage and only covers what I can say with my estimation about 40%. The 60% or even more is scattered in other other acts which are not before you and that uh, they may never be before you during this current session, H. I'm not session, this life of parliament, life in Europe 2020, But the bill tries to consolidate the age of consent to sexual intercourse. That is not in the bill. Another law expert, James Tabola, also spoke to the inconsistencies in the bill, saying it's a document with several weaknesses. It's a pity... Parliamentarians are being asked to debate and critic a bill they also do not understand, which is dangerous. Yeah, the bill, like most laws, have got weaknesses, and Professor Maduko was trying to unpack them. It has weaknesses because um, marriage law in Zimbabwe is connected to many laws, especially about property rights, inheritance, succession, distribution of property on dissolution. So there, the professor was trying to also sensitize Parliament on the shortcomings of the bill, so that when they debate, they consider whether to add those issues or they consider how to address those shortcomings as well. So I totally agree that the bill could have gone further 
because currently our marriage laws have this problem that they leave many things to other laws even if those other issues are critical to marriage so those weaknesses must be addressed and i'm happy that the professor has unpacked those things and parliament may be now know the shortcomings of the bill Sabola added in zimbabwe like in many other countries legislation is introduced by the executive which means a minister sometimes the parliament don't even know the provisions of that legislation so you always need a, an opportunity to unpack the legislation that the executive is introducing because parliament cannot debate it meaningfully without knowing it so this bill it came from the minister of justice and is trying to introduce it in parliament but the parliament was also surprised like individual people so they want a, um, an opportunity to know the contents of the bill so that they can debate it in a meaningful manner comprehensively uh, and also progressively Meanwhile, Cabinet has been seized with directions on the marriages bill and has promised to scrap the controversial Section 40, but lawyers say the section can only be scrapped through Parliament as Cabinet does not change laws. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. The court case of controversial Nigerian pastor Timothy Omotoso is set to resume today in South Africa after a postponement on Monday to allow the judge to make a ruling on issues of the authorization certification. Defense advocate Peter Doberman wants the court to obtain a new authorization certificate from the head of the National Prosecuting Authority on the grounds that the current one does not correspond with the latest indictment and therefore should be rendered invalid. Andang Munji reports from Port Elizabeth. Doberman argued that there's information in the indictment that does not correspond with or is omitted from the authorization certificate. He told the judge that it would be erroneous to assume that the current indictment was in front of the NPA when the certificate was signed. He said that the judge would be skating on thin ice if it is found at a later stage that the certificate refers to a different indictment. Doberman also told the court that his client was entitled to raise any issue of concern, including that of jurisdiction, regardless of having previously consented. This is after he submitted last week that this court had jurisdiction on just seven out of the 97 charges and that his client had already pleaded not guilty. He also urged that the state should stop referring to the first trial as the case has now started afresh. State Prosecutor Ngaiban Delois has told the court that it was not necessary to obtain a new authorization certificate as the current one is still valid. He further argued that the current indictment has no additional charges, meaning it is pretty much the same indictment of which the certificate was issued, but with minor changes. Ndelo clarified the purpose of the authorization certificate, saying it was to authorize charges and that the indictment details the nature of offenses. The case was postponed to tomorrow afternoon to allow the judge to make a ruling on the submissions. Meanwhile, scores of Omotoso supporters continue to sing outside court while the ANC Women's League and other women's rights organizations continue to stand in solidarity with alleged victims. I am Anna Nonji in Port Elizabeth.
The Human Rights Commission of South Africa has welcomed the decision by the magistrates presiding over the Adam Katsavelos hate speech case to recuse himself. The commission, which has brought the court application against Katsavelos, raised concerns about the potential conflict due to the close working relationship that the magistrate Naren Sunaren and Katsavelos' lawyer had 10 years ago. The case has been postponed to the 29th of this month at the Randburg Magistrates' Court, Ditabazodete reports. Adam Katsavelos appeared in the Equality Court sitting in the Randberg Magistrate Court for racial comments he allegedly made while on holiday in Europe in August last year. The Human Rights Commission wants the court to declare Katsavelos' use of the K-word discriminatory and hate speech. Human Rights Commission spokesperson Buang Jones says they welcome a decision by the magistrate to recuse himself following their application. In our submission, we felt that due to a relationship that this would prejudice our case and we felt that this matter should be adjudicated by someone who would be impartial, who does not have any relationship with either of the parties. The commission also wants Casavelos to pay 200,000 rand in damages in order to try and send a strong message to individuals who use the same racial slurs. We always use these cases to serve as a deterrent, to send a clear message to society that we do not tolerate racism. We've seen over the years that racists have become emboldened and uh, they continue to hell discriminatory and racist utterances. But we think that we have to treat each case on its own merits. We have to consider the personal circumstances of the defendant, in this case Mr. Casavelos, who still has to adduce proof to us that he does not have money, that he is no longer conducting business in South Africa. Casavelos has also facing similar charges in Chris Amdidabasotis in Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwesi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. United States President Donald Trump has called on the country to condemn racism, bigotry and white supremacy in his most extensive remarks since mass shootings in Texas and Ohio claimed at least 30 lives over the weekend. After these incidents that are part of a broader violent gun epidemic in the country, Democrats have slammed the president's divisive rhetoric aimed particularly at immigrants and people of color as emboldening the acts of white supremacists. Trump striking at times conciliatory tone called for bipartisan solutions to gun violence as communities in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio mourn the dead. Show in Bryce Peace reports. The front page of the New York Times refers to a bewildered nation shaken to its core. The Washington Post headline simply reads, Two cities, 13 hours, 29 dead, that number rising to 30. A moment of silence at the New York Stock Exchange Monday with vigils held overnight showcasing a mixture of sadness, hurt and anger 
after a lone gunman in Dayton killed nine people at a popular drinking spot, including his sister. These were some of the people attending the vigil. My heart is stunned. My head is not. Um, there's just been too many. And, uh, and it's, I, I don't know how to interpret it, but, but the gridlock is, is horrible. Lives are being shed, and, and something needs to be done. Well, it's just a terrible thing that happened here in Dayton, Ohio, and then all the other uh, shootings that's been taking place. And, you know, right now we're just really realizing that we're just living in a broken and fallen world and, and that, uh, you know, the answer is love. The suspect who killed 21 people at a Walmart in El Paso and injuring 26 is being treated as a domestic terrorist after writing a hateful manifesto railing against immigrants and a Hispanic invasion with President Trump speaking at the White House. The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. We have asked the FBI to identify all further resources they need to investigate and disrupt hate crimes and domestic terrorism, whatever they need. Trump warned that the Internet had provided a dangerous avenue to radicalize disturbed minds while pointing to the glorification of violence through video games as part of the problem. Open wounds cannot heal if we are divided. We must seek real bipartisan solutions. We have to do that in a bipartisan manner that will truly make America safer and better for all. First, we must do a better job of identifying and acting on early warning signs. I am directing the Department of Justice to work in partnership with local, state, and federal agencies as well as social media companies to develop tools that can detect mass shooters before they strike. The Democratic-led House of Representatives in February passed legislation that would make it mandatory for universal background checks, but its progress has been blocked by Republican leadership in the Senate. The president also hasn't escaped criticism. Listen to former El Paso congressman and Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. You see a a president who, in, in his first speech as a candidate for the highest office in the land, described Mexican immigrants as as rapists and criminals, has been warning about the threats of, of caravans and asylum seekers who he's described as animals and, and an infestation, despite the fact that immigrants commit crimes at a far lower rate than do those who are born in this country, despite the fact that we are now in one of the safest cities in the United States of America, safe not despite but because it is a city of immigrants, the president's language, his rhetoric, has produced the kinds of hate crimes that we saw in El Paso yesterday, but we've been seeing across this country, they've been on the rise for each one of the last three years. Oh, I won't be afraid, no, I won't 
The El Paso and Dayton massacres have taken this country to 251 mass shootings this year alone, and it's only August. There are at least four other mass shootings this weekend, with fewer dead, that are receiving less national media attention in the wake of the devastation in Texas and Ohio. And while the president has called for bipartisan legislation that made it harder for people with mental illnesses to buy a gun. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. Lafarge Cement Zimbabwe is committed to supporting the infrastructure development agenda of the country and is currently prospecting another affordable housing project in the Manresa area in Harare, which is set to kick off before year-end. Lafarge says of the continued strong demand for recent and affordable housing in Zimbabwe is driving the company to provide efficient, sustainable and cost-effective building solutions. In 2017, the company commissioned an affordable housing project where 85 low-cost housing units were constructed in Adelaide Park in the capital Harare. Zambian President Ed Galungu has called for a thorough probe into the ownership of 48 luxury apartments after the country's anti-corruption agency's failure to establish who the owners were. The Anti-Corruption Commission has come under fire after it revealed that it had closed the case involving the luxury apartments built on the outskirts of the country's capital, Lusaka. The apartments have since been forfeited to the government. The Petroleum Fund of Lesotho says that the country does not subsidize petroleum fuel prices, but consumers instead benefit from the country's lower taxes charged on the products. This was highlighted during the organization's recent national public awareness. The fund says that Lesotho does not base its petroleum fuel prices on those of neighboring South Africa. The U.S. has formally accused China of manipulating its currency a day after Beijing allowed the yuan to fall below the key seven per dollar level, the first time in a decade. Last week, President Donald Trump announced that the United States would put a new 10% tariff on $300 billion worth of imports from China. The BBC's Michelle Fleury reports. On Sunday night, Beijing responded to President Trump's threat of new tariffs by letting its currency, the yuan, fall in value against the dollar. Hours later, with no end in sight to Mr Trump's trade battle with China, all of the major indexes tumbled when the US markets opened. The tech giant Apple led the decline in stocks that have the most to lose from a new round of tariffs, dropping by more than 5%. President Trump on Twitter accused China of currency manipulation. The weaker yuan will make its exports to the US cheaper. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.39 Nigerian Nara, 10.73 Botswana Pula, 101.87 Kenyan Shilling, and 12.88 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.91 Brazilian roll, a 65.26 Russian ruble, 70.61 Indian rupee, 7.8 Chinese yuan, and 14.88 to the South African rand.
It's also trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Commodities markets, gold 1,000. Four sixty-four dollars platinum, eight fifty-five dollars per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at sixty dollars twenty cents a barrel. From an African perspective, Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with football news ongoing in South Africa's Eastern Cape province. South Africa wrapped up their group stages of the 2019 Kosafa Women's Championship, beating Madagascar 3-0. In their final group match on Monday afternoon at Wolfson Stadium in the Eastern Cape province. The win means Banyana Banyana topped Group A with nine points, thus qualifying for the semi finals and still on course to defend the title. It was also a match where coach Desiree Ellis gave a chance to the younger players to get a run on the pitch. She shares her thoughts on the match. Um, I felt that uh, we were in complete control of the match. Um, they sat back very deep. Um, with a, with a wall right at the back um, and we wanted to play the ball around and force them out um, we also gave an opportunity to two debutants um, which is important for us when we come to this competition is to give players an opportunity but more importantly also to make the pool bigger um, we've used this competition in the past for that and uh, it's helped us to prepare for AFCON and for the World Cup um, and we managed the game well we conserved a lot of energy um, but we could have scored more goals um, I felt at times when we were just outside the penalty box, instead of having shots at goal, we were still trying to pass it around. And when we should have passed the ball around, we were trying to dribble, etc. So that's still some decision-making that we have to improve on. As the like most Kosafa tournaments, coach Desiree Ellis used the tournament to try out new combinations and also made several changes to today's starting eleven. She explains. Look, it's always good to give players an opportunity because this is the only way you can test whether they are ready for, for a higher level. Um, and as always, we, we, we try to keep our back line more or less the same, you know, to have that um, synergy and consistency where they were the defenders. Um, our goalkeepers, we've always rotated at the tournament. But as you said, it gets to the business end now. Where we have a look at everybody's performance and obviously pick the strongest lineup for, for the next. But knowing that players have been given opportunity, uh, we've also changed, uh, made some positional changes uh, throughout the tournament to also look what else players have to offer. Because when you go to tournaments, you need that uh, multifunctional players. And uh, you're right, it gets to the business end now. Um, we'll take a, a night off and then prepare for, for the next game uh, you know, tomorrow. In rugby news, the two tests against Argentina, starting with Saturday's challenging encounter in Salta, will provide the Springboks with more opportunities to prepare for the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan. Assistant coach Mesh Proud has announced that in Buenos Aires, the Springboks assembled in the Argentine capital over the weekend after completing a week of training in Auckland, New Zealand. The Pumas host the Springboks in the high altitude of Salta this weekend in the final test of the truncated rugby championship. And the two teams then play each other a week later in Pretoria. 
The Springboks have a one-point advantage over the All Blacks at the top of the rugby championship standings after a bonus point win over the Wallabies in Johannesburg and a thrilling comeback draw with New Zealand in Wellington. National Director of Rugby, Rashi Rasmus, will announce his team tomorrow afternoon. And that's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sour. A DRC's new prime minister prepares to form long-awaited government. And experts express concern over growing food insecurity in Africa. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magadza and Tutungobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show... Send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Moby Dixon featuring something Soweto with a song titled Amandu. Amandu.